all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is a program where we take your calls during the hour concerning any type of health care issues that you might have, or maybe you're concerned about someone else in your family or a close friend. You can call us right now with those questions by dialing one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you're not able to call, you can always send us an email. We might get to a few of those this morning. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody is having a great Wednesday morning. A little bit of sunshine out there. It's always uh, more tolerable for me if I can get some sunshine if it's colder. Um, So it's nice to uh, see that outside the window and feel it a little bit too when I'm walking outside. But certainly have had our share of cold weather over the weekend. I know I had a a couple of plants that I thought could make it that didn't quite make it. (laughs) Probably should have pulled those in. Maybe I should have listened to Felder or somebody else like that. But um, but that's uh, that's part of the the uh, joy and uh, and the challenge of uh, of growing things in the south. So um, hope everybody is taking precautions though that you need to for yourself uh, for uh, for your kids and uh, those that are more susceptible to uh, heat and cold changes. Kevin, I think you had a question that we were going to lead off with. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So um, I was playing tennis this past Sunday, uh, and then when I ran for a shot, I felt a, a tweak in my groin muscle, and so I was limping around for a couple of days. I'm feeling a little bit better today, but I'm just curious. First of all, is there an official? It's not pulled, obviously. It wasn't that severe. Is there an official medical term for that? And also, what exactly happened uh, to mm-hmm. cause the discomfort? Yeah, that's uh, so there's lots of different ways to describe it, but basically what happens is that's a tear either in a muscle or a tendon, which the tendon attaches the muscle to a bone. And usually that's an overuse injury where you're applying more pressure than that tendon can uh, can take, and you have small tears, sometimes a large tear. If it tears all the way in two, you almost always know that. And usually with, with groin pulls or tendonitis of that uh, is what we would call it, or a small tear in the tendon, that's not as big a deal, and you just need to rest up, and um, and uh, it heals up with with uh, just a little bit of rest. You can also, you know, apply some ice to it and take some things like ibuprofen. But generally, those are those are limiting in their scope. Uh, there are instances when, for instance, if you're if you have a muscle, let's say that you're catching large things. Uh, large bags of, uh, of of fertilizer, for instance, and it's 
50 to 100 pound bags of fertilizer on an outstretched arm that you might tear a tendon all the way in two, particularly a rotator cuff tendon that's just not just not made to carry that amount of weight uh, abruptly, then that would that's not something that usually does not heal on its own if it's a complete tear, and that might require some surgical intervention. One thing to prevent those, of course, is stretching. So the more limber that you are, you're gonna the actual forces on that tendon are gonna be a little bit less and they're gonna be spread out. Uh, so if you're tighter, and uh, actually this is the time of year then you, that you see those. Um, in in every sport because of uh, the cold sort of makes muscles uh, tend to tighten up a little bit. So a good stretching routine before an activity is always a good thing and a proper warm-up, even if it's just a a friendly game of tennis. But that's uh, sort of an overview of what happens there. And uh, common things, I've been uh, outside building a patio behind my house, and I have some uh, wrist problems from that that is just sort of an overuse injury and again it's just sort of micro tears in those tendons that need to heal up and then after they've healed up you can uh, ease back into that but great question very common one well you know I, I at least was smart you're right that I was not smart enough to stretch and I knew I should have and didn't but was smart enough to know that once I felt that little initial twinge I kind of backed off and then as I've said I've taken it easy for a couple of days but I'm feeling better so I I hope by the weekend I'll be ready to be back out on the courts yeah, and most of the times that's what you see, you know, from a time course standpoint. It's usually three or four days, maybe a week at the most. Um, and and that's a, the other thing is there's lots of different movements that we don't do a whole lot. So a sideways movement is usually you don't see people walking down hallways leaping from side to side like you would in on a in a tennis game. So it it you know if you think about it, those types of muscle movements and the engagement of different muscles in those movements. Even if you're walking, people will tell me all the time, well, I'm very active. I'm walking every day or even I'm jogging, but I don't know why I pulled a muscle playing tennis or playing, you know, some other sport. Um, and the reason is you're using different muscle sets and uh, you really have to think about that and warm those up. So you're exactly right, Kevin. That's a common thing that uh, we all uh, deal with. And you tend to deal with that as you get older a little bit, uh, a little bit more. It takes a little bit of time more time to warm up if you're older. Normally, if you're young, just sort of push through those things and it doesn't cause too many problems. Great question to lead off with. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, uh, taking your calls this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you're not able to call and you uh, want to catch the program, you should check out our um, podcast. You can just search for Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio, or you can go to our website, mpbonline.org, and search for previous archive programs. There's two great ways to listen to those. Or maybe you caught part of the program and didn't quite get the first part of what somebody was asking or an explanation. You had to jet off to something else. You can always go back and listen to those at your leisure that's more convenient for you. Speaking of other musculoskeletal questions, we did have uh, a, an email recently uh, from a listener that said, I have been diagnosed with tennis elbow. I guess we're just going to bash on tennis today. We, I have been diagnosed with tennis elbow. I had a steroid shot in November, but it started back in December. How does tennis elbow happen, and is there a remedy? I like that last part of that question, remedy, since this is a southern remedy. So tennis elbow is, again, 
skin. It's a tendonitis. So it's where those tendons attach to the bone, but it's usually on right below where your elbow bends on the outside uh, um, edge of it. So if you're, you know, if you would look at somebody, it's sort of towards the, uh, toward, not towards their main uh, torso or body, it's toward the other side uh, if they're standing and facing you. So, um, and again, that's just repetitive movements. It's usually from more backhand shots if you're playing tennis, but you can get this from anything. You could get this from an overuse injury if you're picking up heavy things, particularly with your hands. That can cause a lot of tendonitis at that spot. And um, it is the fancy name for it is epicondylitis because the epicondyle that where that tendons or those tendons that help um, help your hands and uh, attach to the forearms, um, th- those originate at that spot. And an overuse of those really causes a lot of pain, causes some micro tears in those tendons. And generally speaking, same kind of things. You can actually help these heal up, particularly if you have to do repetitive inj- uh, repetitive mo- movements with your hands. By a band, you may have seen somebody, it looks like a giant rubber band that fits just below the elbow. And basically what that's doing is it applies pressure to those tendons at a different spot and it changes where that maximum force is located. And that can help those uh, tendons heal up where they attach to the bone. Um, Again, Aleve, ibuprofen, those help with the inflammation. Certainly icing it down can help too. But that's just what happens is you have an overuse at that area and you can uh, cause a little micro tears there. But that's uh, tennis elbow. A lot of people will say, they'll come to me and I'll say, yeah, that's tennis elbow. It's really easy to diagnose. You don't have to do an x-ray or anything. You just sort of press on the, you know, get a good history and then press on that area. A lot of people will not play tennis, so they'll be very confused when you tell them that they have tennis elbow, but it's not actually from that. It's from other movements that are putting pressure on those same tendons. So uh, another common uh, injury, and again, we're not bashing on tennis. You can certainly um, certainly have that with lots of other um, um, uh, activities. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Coach Charlie Melton, and I want to help steer you in the right direction. If you need coaching on fixing up your automobile, listen to our podcast, AutoCorrect, found on all podcasting platforms. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and email questions about all kinds of different medical disorders or maybe it's a symptom that you're having, new medication. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or email us the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Tim from Ellisville. Good morning, Tim. What's your question this morning? Hey, doctor. Uh, I really wanted to reinforce what uh, you have been 
what what has been said about stretching because uh, about a year ago um, I felt my hamstring pull um, not pull but tighten uh, one afternoon and as soon as I got home my wife wanted me to move a potted plant <laughs> and when I bent down to move that I actually ruptured a disc in my back. Ugh. And yeah. um, and I really attribute part of that to, you know, the tight hamstring that I had. Um, so I'd like your comment on that. Yeah. So um, the, you know, there's there's di- certainly you know you can pull a muscle if you don't have the full range of that muscle. Uh, hamstrings are a very common one to do that to. Uh, usually, that's a forceful movement. Um, uh, you can be picking something up, or if you're if you're uh, you know running quickly, or uh, you see it a lot in athletes in in sprinting events because there's so much force that's being generated at the hamstring level. And um, certainly having a stretching program before doing something like that, um, an, an activity like that can help. Now, I agree. I think it might be, these might be connected because what generally happens, if you have an injury in one place like a hamstring, it's going to change the way that you walk. It's going to change the way that you stand a little bit differently, and it can put some pressure on other things. Now, the disc in between our vertebrae and our back are there for a reason. They're the little cushions that help um, uh, help with movement uh, between the bones and cushion those bones. Um, and they can rupture. There's Usually that means that the inner substance of that ruptures through the outer substance. There's lots of things that can go along with that. Sometimes osteoarthritis can. But um, if you're not supporting those vertebrae and those discs with good muscle tone, and that's why core muscle strength, and that's just the, the muscle strength that's in the abdomen and in the back um, to help stabilize that, it really it really can take a lot of the forces off the spine and off the, the discs themselves and then distribute that in the muscles. And that's really the best design for our bodies to function. But if you if you injure one part, that's why it's real important to sort of limit activity until you can heal up. And we're not talking about limiting activity for weeks. You, generally speaking, um, most of the time it's better if you only limit it for a week or two. Of course, you know, depending on the circumstance, you want to make sure you talk to your physician about that. But um, after that, if it's still hurting, there's probably something else going on. So I agree. I, you know, without knowing the total mechanism there, can you totally as- ascribe that back to the hamstring? Not entirely, but it probably didn't help that you didn't have those muscles to help engage uh in you know picking up something that's heavy and then the other thing i'll say too is proper form is really important uh, most of these overuse injuries there's some degree of improper form um so it's you know not uh bending down if you if you bend down from the back that's going to put way more pressure on your back than it's designed for and you really should use your legs of course if you've got a pulled hamstring that takes your legs out of the picture a little bit so yeah tim i think that's a little bit of a chicken and the egg uh issue here but certainly sounds like those may have been tied together thank you uh, uh, you're welcome let's go to alan from raymond good morning alan hi good morning doctor thank you for taking my call i love these shows uh thank you so this happened about a week ago my left arm, from someplace like in the middle of my palm up the forearm, 
up to the forearm. It's like maybe I've been using my whole my phone in my hand too much, or but I'm not doing anything different. But I went to see a doctor, and he said just put some arthritis cream on. It's it yeah, well, yeah, it might make yeah, you feel a little better, but. Yeah, and most people don't, you know, it could be just if you're, even if it's not something that's heavy like your phone, uh, there's a lot of overuse injuries with phones. Now, most of those are with, in the hand, in the wrist, but the way that you're holding it um, up to your ear, sometimes that can cause a lot of problems, If you're, particularly if you're using the same hand. <clears throat> you do have to, you know, this is one of those, I, I said this a lot, but it's really true, you got to be sort of a good detective to try to figure out sometimes, particularly with some chronic injuries, where where are you exactly hurting that that joint, or or is there something that's uh, going on repetitively? Good idea to get somebody to check it out. They can do some tests on your arm, and I don't mean like lab tests or those kinds of things or X-rays even, but a good physical exam test to to test out the strength and the function of those muscles and tendons uh, through different things. And you can sort of isolate certain ones by doing certain things. So it's not just the muscles that you see underneath your skin, but it's the ones that are deep inside too, like the rotator cuff muscles. And then making sure that you've got good um, sensory um, and, and neurologic tone in there too to make sure there's not a problem there. When somebody comes to me with arm pain or arm discomfort or just a you know a, an inability to move the arm, I'm going to be thinking about things all the way from the neck because the nerves originating there sometimes can affect the function of the arm and also pain in the arm all the way down to the fingertips. So I'm going to be thinking about all that and probably do an exam that involves all of those structures that I can do. And then from there, then you can get fancy if you need to with other tests. But most of the time, you can make the diagnosis on that. Uh, Alan, I, I might just try doing, particularly since you said your phone, maybe trying not to hold your phone in that hand. Is this your dominant hand? Is this the hand that uh, you're no, right I'm, with? I'm right-handed, and yeah. I try I try to do as much as I can with my left hand. But uh, yeah. I, yeah. I never said pain mostly when I pick up the phone. But... I wonder if this has anything to do. I had an accident in 1978 working UPS. It got somehow got caught in a cavella belt, oh. and I felt it was crushed up to the elbow. I mean, I still got the scars. Well, the scars are faded a lot, but um, but uh, yeah. the strength came back in the hand after going to therapy. After let me see, that was. Uh, November 21st and the following March 13th I went back to work it couldn't do anything but picking up parcels because I was a loader in a truck I went back to the same thing and it built it up and, uh, after two months I mean yeah, yeah. did that have anything and, to do with because I don't know how the arm got in there the hand right. got, it just sucked me in I mean I, I, yeah. I'm, I, I think I hurt the shoulder more than I hurt the arm but they were treating where the burning was because it kind of wore down in the palm, you know, the top of the hand. Yeah, it's possible um, something that, you know, that's a long time ago, so yeah. you would think that you would have more, you know, more symptoms in the interim time. Uh, now, if you had some kind of injury to your shoulder or the upper arm, too, in that, you might have, you know, sort of set it up for arthritis. So it's always... 
that's always a possibility, particularly if you were doing a lot of repetitive movements over time. And almost everybody has some degree of arthritis in their hands. And if you're using your arms to load things like that and moving them, particularly if you're if your elbow goes above your shoulder repetitively, you, you're at risk for having, you know, all, uh, if if the muscles aren't in good shape in the rotator cuff, you're going to do some damage if you do a lot of repetitive movements like that. The shoulder is a wonderful joint. It has a lot of range of motion, but it also, if you overuse it, and a good example of this would be, um, you know, pitchers, uh, baseball pitchers that um, – that's why we have limitations on on pitching, particularly in in uh, in school and in, in at younger ages, because you can really damage that joint if you over uh, if you overuse it. So, yeah, Alan, I, you, it might you know if it continues, you might want to see somebody since you had that previous injury to look at it a little, in a little bit more detail. And that is a reason that you might want to get an they might want to get an X-ray of the shoulder joint, the elbow, uh, depending on what the exam shows, and then maybe even an MRI. And the MRI, you know, an X-ray is going to show us what the bones look like and the joint spaces, but they don't really tell us a lot about the soft tissues, including the muscles and tendons and ligaments. So those are things that are going to show up on an MRI and might get you some more information about that. Uh, okay. Um, I don't know if this doctor knows about this because, that, like you say, it was a long, long time ago. I've had yeah. a doctor in between him, so I don't know if I put that there, but it's kind of... Well, yeah, and, 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 and make, sure, make sure they know I don't about use it. Make sure they know about that previous injury because that's that's going to be important. That you know any previous injury like that on, uh, uh, even if it's that distant, it's always a good idea to to uh, you know let them know about it. Yeah, yeah, it uh, hurt me when I was jogging after between the second mile and the fourth mile. For some reason, after the fourth mile, it didn't bother me because I couldn't do anything else because of the arm. But yeah. I found out running, I was able to do that. But it was just I had to put through the pain between the second and the fourth mile for some strange reason I I I, I kept going and then I realized, oh I can do this but I just have to suffer. But after some months more it went away then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd get somebody else to look at. It. You may even need to get to a like a sports medicine doctor or an orthopedic surgeon that deals with the upper extremity, um, and they can give you a thorough exam and see what they need to do up from there. Okay, yeah, I've been to uh, <laughs> Mississippi Sports Medicine. I have my left knee replaced. Well, maybe they have somebody there. Yeah, they do. They they that would be an excellent resource. So I'd give them a call. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Raymond, th- or Alan, thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Another email that we got recently, so this is about a, um, a six-year-old son is on Adderall for ADHD. So that's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. He has night terrors at bedtime, even taken clonidine for sleep at night. Any idea on why children have night terrors when trying to go to sleep? So really common uh, issue for kids. Um, 
Night terrors, actually, my uh, I, I had this when I was uh, younger, and uh, sometimes it can run into in families. It has sort of a genetic predisposition. Um, night terrors is when it usually happens between 4 and 12 years of age, and it's in the first third of the time that a child goes to sleep. So if you just break up that time at night, let's say it's, uh, you know, it's nine hours, then uh, in the first three hours of that, usually the child will... They'll act like they're wide awake, they'll be screaming, they'll be afraid, but you'll talk to them and they won't know what you're saying at all. Um, And they just scream and scream and scream, they can go back to sleep, and they won't remember anything the next day. So it is really terrifying for the parent, not so much for the child. And it's one of these uh, disorders that's called the parasomnias. That just means there are things that happen around the time that we fall asleep or during the night. So uh, sleepwalking is another one. Nightmares is another one. But uh, night terrors, there's not much to do about that. The biggest thing is making the environment safe. So in other words, if that child's on a bunk bed or maybe the bed's up high, they're they're not going to be in control of their environment in the way that they normally would if they would wake up. So uh, making sure that there's not anything that they can hurt themselves in the room. You don't have to pad the whole thing up, but you you may want to just secure doors and windows. Uh, clearing of the bedroom from of uh, that they sleep in of obstructions, those kinds of things. That some people have given medications for this, and clonidine's not necessarily one of them. That's an old blood pressure medication that is also used sometimes for uh, an adjunct uh, for ADD and for sleep. Um, but there's not. There may be a couple other medications that you might want to give, but most of the time these go away on their own. They can last months to years sometimes, but it, again, it doesn't really cause any problem with the child. Um, one thing that you can do is make sure that they are getting enough sleep is make sure you have a set time that you uh, have that they go to sleep and make sure that's a quiet environment so because we know that uh, if you if sleep deprivation can actually make these worse. Um, and, but again, from the child's standpoint, they do really well with these. They don't really cause any long-term problems. We don't really know why that they happen, but usually reassurance and rearranging the bedroom are the things to do for those and just to know that, that everything's fine. And uh, you, you can just sort of redirect the child when they're having that back to their bed uh, and just uh, allow them to go back to sleep. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is 
Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about all kinds of good things and uh, got a lot of musculoskeletal questions this morning. But uh, certainly any other topic this morning we are is fair game. So you can call us right now and ask those. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. I had a couple of patients this week that I saw. uh, These are adult patients, and they were concerned about their blood pressure. And certainly there have been multiple reasons for people to – one thing that we found with with, – during this uh, COVID pandemic is that mental health is a big issue. And because we have had increased stressors externally, and certainly the news has, uh, you know, just thrown all kinds of stuff our way – and um, that's a lot of increased stressors, certainly different um, uh, patterns of work and school and people getting sick and uh, and sometimes dying. Uh, those are all increased stressors on everybody. So we've, we certainly have seen a lot of anxiety and increases in depression and other mental disorders that have come up. But one of my patients asked me, because they noticed that their blood pressure had uh, been up during some of those stressful conditions and wanted to know to what extent that that um, increased stress has on blood pressure. So, you know, stress, some degree of stress is good. You probably know people that thrive on stress. We used to call these type A personalities where you're just really, these are the people who really are the go-getters. They really want a, uh, an adventure and a challenge at all times. And, um they may be closing deals. You know, I think of some of those old movies back in the 80s of uh, of Wall Street barons and uh, these guys who were lawyers who were going out there and just uh, going at it and just love that excitement about doing things. Um, so what about that stress that you feel that way? Well, everybody interprets and they deal with stress differently and their bodies react to it differently. So a good way is to look at the blood pressure while you have that stressor. Um, now, a lot of people will say, well, my blood pressure is high. Is that causing the stress? Most of the time, no. Um, there's not really a reason why blood pressure should cause stress in that manner or the feeling of stress. It's probably the opposite. So that if you're having, if you get really angry, if you're in lots of traffic and that bothers you, um, if you're really challenged in your job and uh, or maybe you lost your job, you lost a spouse, um, those are all reasons why your blood pressure can go up. Um, that is a normal blood pressure response for most anybody. And if you uh, if you did take your blood pressure, I don't necessarily advocate for this at those times, you can see that blood pressure being high. Now, if it's high, people will call and say, well, shouldn't I treat it with a blood pressure medication if it's high? And the answer is no, because what's causing it to be high is that anxiety or stress, and you may need to uh, do some things. You don't always have to have medications to deal with that. We know that addressing that through uh, through some relaxation techniques on the spot or with cognitive behavioral therapy with a psychologist or a psychiatrist, those can be extremely helpful and just as helpful as taking a medication in a lot of situations. Um, but medications may be used useful in the treatment of both anxiety and depression or a combination of those things. And almost 
always, if somebody's had an elevated blood pressure and anxiety and depression, if you treat the anxiety and depression, uh, blood you'll see the blood pressure go down. In fact, I sort of kid around sometimes with medical students and residents, hey, you know, one of our best blood pressure medications is anxiety medications that we use. So um, you can really really affect that that way. And uh, blood pressure, again, is not static. I've probably, you've probably heard me say this before. A lot of people would say, well, isn't your blood pressure supposed to be the same throughout the day and throughout the night and from day to day? And the answer is no. Um, the uh, a normal pl- person's blood pressure should decrease about 20% at night, and then it goes up throughout the day, sort of peaks in the mid-afternoon for most people, um, and then uh, and then goes back down the next night. But it can be elevated if you're in a stressful situation. Uh, a lot of people, even when they come in the doctor's office, they'll have what's called white coat hypertension, where you just have an exaggerated stress response that makes your blood pressure go up. And one of the best ways to uh, to test for that is to get good blood pressures at home, make sure that the patient is, knows how to take those blood pressures, make sure that their device that they're using is accurate, which you can do that if you bring your device to your physician's office. They can check it against theirs. And then if those blood pressures at home are normal, uh, then certainly you can go with those for uh, what your what your goal blood pressure should be and sort of what that target is. So just a couple of things about anxiety, depression, and blood pressure, and they're all sort of tied together. Certainly any type of uh, stressful response um, to a situation can have an effect on not just our mental well-being and our mental health, but also our physical health. Uh, we know that from lots of, of good long-term studies, uh, some of the data that came out of World War II with uh, some of the concentration camps and, and subsequent prisoner of war camps certainly attribute to that fact, and you can have increased risk of heart attack and uh, stroke and lots of vascular damage in those situations. So it is important, certainly, to uh, address those kinds of, uh, of uh, mental illnesses and mental disorders so that you can not just correct that, but you can also have a big effect on the rest of the body. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I got another email lately. Uh, this one was, uh, or recently, um, this one was about a six-year-old who's a picky eater. We all um, can attest to that in one way or another. That's a common age to be more picky about what they eat, particularly if they have other choices that are a lot more palatable to them, like sugary foods or high-starchy foods. But they're saying that their six-year-old is a picky eater, and they're worried about their health as it relates to their nutrition. Should I give them a multivitamin, and if so, which one and or which individual vitamin should I give them to make sure that they don't have any problems? Uh, yeah, so this is another common question that we get uh, quite often, and uh, we don't typically test. Another question is, why don't you just test everybody for vitamin deficiencies and then supplement them? And we really don't do that. Um, The ranges for some of these are really wide. In other words, B12 is is a good example. B6, B12, some of the B vitamins have really wide ranges of normal. 
Um, and most of the time, even if you have limited dietary intake of these foods, you can supplement that in your diet just fine and don't have to have a vitamin or anything like that. That being said, it's not a bad idea, particularly if your child is not getting a good source of uh, vitamins, minerals, and other essential things for growth and, and health uh, uh, that they should be that a multivitamin should be just fine. There's multi, there's lots of different ways that you can give that. Uh, a lot of people use sort of the gummy bears, which almost taste like candy. You have to be careful, particularly if they have iron in them, that you don't, you know, have free access to that um, because you can have some problems if you take too much of it. But there's lots of ways to get them to take that. We've come a long way from those old Flintstones that they had when I was a kid. Um, but that's not a bad idea. And they'll have sort of the minimal amounts that they need um, in taking those vitamins so that you don't have to worry as much. Still a good idea to eat lots of fruits and vegetables, not a whole lot of processed foods or red meats or sweets. Uh, but certainly you can supplement that with, with those vitamins. As far as taking something in addition to that, there's not a, really a lot of evidence to support that particularly in children, unless they have another condition. Now, certainly there are instances of things like iron deficiency anemia, where we're not getting enough iron intake. Um, a lot of kids who may be drinking way too much milk, particularly after the age of one, uh, if they're, uh, you know, if they're just, um, if they're having that intake and they're not eating a lot of other foods and getting full on that, they can have iron deficiency uh, or just not getting it in their diet effectively. And that can have a lot of problems. We do screen for those kinds of things with a hemoglobin um, and a lead in some instances, depending on where you live. And that's looking for, uh, again, for the anemias that we can diagnose and that we can treat. Um, but beyond that, we don't do a lot of lab work unless we see other things that are going on. So if there is some uh, evidence that they might have a certain vitamin deficiencies like vitamin C or vitamin D, those are the kind of things that we're going to check. And if they're low, that we could supplement those with a uh, vitamin or a uh, specific vitamin supplement. But beyond that, there's not really a reason to do that. And as you've heard me say, uh, there's nothing really that is is better then uh, unless you have a medical condition that's not allowing you to absorb a lot of it, it there's nothing better than a diet that's high in vegetables and fruits uh, and uh, lean, uh, healthy healthy meats. That, that Those are the kind of things really that uh, children need for good growth. And you can see the effects long time after that. You know, what we eat, our grandparents used to tell us this, you are what you eat totally true um, and that can have big benefits decades after that so um, most people think you can change those behaviors later on and get all the benefits and not necessarily true we do lay down a lot of the um, uh, bad effects on our vessels and uh, uh, um, from eating things that aren't good for us and certainly a lot of risk with uh, lots of cancers over time if you do that I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. 
We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking some calls and uh, fielding some emails about some good information. It's always a good show when uh, people can share some of the questions they have. If A lot of people feel like they, they're the, maybe the only ones to have that question and they don't need to call in, but I guarantee you, if you share that question with us, there's probably a lot more people than you think out there that have the same types of questions. So we always welcome that. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. If you aren't able to call in, certainly you can email us those questions and we'll try to get back to you as soon as possible and also share those with our listening audience if you give us permission. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Tom, who's been patiently waiting from Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. How are you? Good. the prophetic that you mentioned that some people have the same question because I have exactly the same question. This is a second second opinion. I've asked this question a few months ago and got your answer, but something occurred yesterday that brought it up again. Uh, let me give you a background first. I'm 76 uh, in what I consider excellent condition. Uh, the only medication I take is uh, statin for cholesterol. Uh, I do uh, walk every most mornings uh, at a brisk pace, two miles at sub-15-minute miles, uh, and I do uh, uh, resistance uh, exercises uh, at the Y. Uh, yesterday I had cataract surgery, and, uh, well, first let me say that uh, for as long as I've taken my uh, heartbeat measurements, it's been around 50 beats a minute. Uh, and that's been at least 10 years now. It's always right around that, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little higher. Uh, and I have an app on my phone where I take it uh, most mornings to see, and it's always 48 to 52. So anyhow, I had cataract surgery yesterday, and while I was in recovery, uh, they obviously are monitoring my uh, heart rate, and uh, it's showing sometimes 50, then it would drop down into the 40s, and one time dropped as low as 39, uh, but it would go, it was fluctuating from 40 to 55 or 6, uh, and either the nurse or the anesthesiologist, I don't know, I thought it was the anesthesiologist, I don't know why he did, would have still been there, but one of them mentioned that I ought to see a cardiologist about a pacemaker because that heart rate seemed low. Uh, so this is a second second opinion from you to find out what you thought. I know you had mentioned the last time that at times your heart rate was around 40 uh, when you were right. running. Right. So, so do I need to see a cardiologist uh, to consider a pacemaker? 
Yeah, a couple of things that uh, I would say to help you, you know, to answer that question. Um, it's very, it's it's fairly common for people to have heart rates in the upper 40s or 50s. Um, particularly when they've been very active their whole life. Um, younger individuals in particular can have uh, lower rates. Uh, you mentioned myself when I was, so I ran track in high school and, and college a little bit, and uh, my, my heart rate would be, I think, 42 was the lowest that I, that I, at that time. Now, certainly, I'm not as active now, and it's, you know, up around um, the uh, mid-50s to 60. But um, that it can be individually, it can be lower as a measurement of your fitness. Now, the, 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 you know, if you look at sort of the cutoff of what's abnormal and normal, most of the time, if most, it, particularly on like apps that you, you have or other programs, maybe they'll, they'll have a lower cutoff of 50. So if it's below 50, they'll say, well, that's abnormal. So you have to understand that that may or may not be abnormal in the setting of the individual person. So you have to ask other questions. And the the things that would make it abnormal is if you're having chest pain, if you're having uh if you're having lightheadedness, if during your walk and that's a pretty brisk pace that you have there, if you're having uh you know, if your heart rate's not increasing during that time appropriately and you're having uh trouble doing some of the activities that you were doing, walking those two to three miles at less than 15-minute pace or some of those other activities. So those would be the things, as you get older, that would be sort of warning symptoms or red flags that you would want this investigated a little bit more. It's super easy to get an EKG, and there are different reasons why your heart rate is slow. Most people that have a normal slow heart rate have what's called sinus bradycardia, which just means your heart's very efficient, and it is pumping a lot of blood efficiently, uh, so it doesn't need to pump as fast. If you're walking, I bet your heart rate probably gets up, you know, 120 or so, or maybe even higher than that. And you need it to do that to pump more blood to those <clears throat> to those larger muscles, so that you can do what you can do uh, um, while you're exercising. But um, if you're feeling fine when it's you know at those lower ranges, that should be okay. And a good example of this, and I don't know if I said this this previous time, but when I had surgery, uh, I'm 50, I'll soon be 52 in a couple of months. So 12 years ago, I had surgery, uh, a minor surgery, uh, and it was going to be a 30-minute procedure. But I was I was actually training for, for uh, a marathon at the time. I had just run it. Uh, my heart rate, my resting heart rate was about 45 or so. Um, and I told my the anesthesiologist who was going to do the surgery in the pre-op evaluation, I said, look, <laughs> my heart rate, my resting heart rate's in the mid-40s, and it is common if you're asleep and you were actually checking your pulse rate, it would probably be a little bit lower than that even if you're not, you know, if you're resting. And then sometimes during anesthesia, it can drop even a little bit lower. So I sort of gave them the heads up, look, you know, with proper anesthesia, I may drop down to the 30s. So I just wanted you to be aware of that. There's not anything dangerous about that in that situation as long as the rhythm looks fine. So there's the rate of your heart uh, or pulse rate and then the rhythm. So it it would be super easy to get an EKG on you, and if it looks fine, it looks like this is a, a normal rhythm 
to your heart and the electrical activity looks okay, it's just slower, then um, then that's probably not a big deal. So, you know, sometimes we say things outside of the normal realm that, uh, unfortunately, medical professionals, when, and I've been guilty of this, too, to say, you know, you're probably going to need to get that looked at. Uh, but I don't, you, certainly nobody could just look at that individual uh, pulse rate or even a tracing and say, you need a pacemaker. There's a further evaluation for that. But if you being, you know, very active, 76, had this for a long time, I honestly wouldn't worry about it unless you had some of those other red flags or warning symptoms. But outside of that, I think you're fine. Well, the good news is I have no symptoms or problems when I'm walking, and uh, uh, I don't have any chest pain. Uh, And according to the app I have on my phone, my impulse is pretty steady. Uh, You know, I don't have any any all of a sudden strange blips or anything. It's kind of... so, right. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate the second second opinion. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's comforting. <laughs> That's good. Well, keep keep active. That's what I can say to you, Tom. Keep uh, eating right and staying active. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. dot